Well, I label this morning's message, What Every Christian Wants. And as I was thinking about that, what does every Christian want? Well, we want Jesus to return, right? We want to go to heaven. More specifically, we want the rapture to happen so we don't have to suffer death and be with God forever. Well, those are great things. And those are things we should want. But as he tarries and we're still here on earth, what does every Christian want? And I know that when we become saved and the Holy Spirit indwells us, our desires change. The things that we want change. And I think every Christian does have a desire to die out to self and keep God first. And we struggle with that. And I think every Christian does want to be the man or woman that God uses. So I kind of summarized it like this. Every Christian wants to be the kind of person God uses. Well, I figured we'd get things started this morning to make sure everybody was awake and alert with a little Bible quiz. And uh, I got this from a pastor of a Bible church in Illinois, so I'll give you a hint. All of the answers have to do with the Old Testament. So question number one. Who was the greatest comedian in the Bible? That was Samson. He brought the house down. All right, now you see how this is going to work. All right, question number two. Who was the greatest babysitter mentioned in the Bible? That was David. He rocked Goliath to a deep sleep. Well, being the financial person here at the church, the next one is my favorite. Who was the greatest male financier of the Bible? Well, that was Noah. He was floating his stock while everyone else was in liquidation. <laughs> and who was the greatest female financier of the Bible? That was Pharaoh's daughter. She went down to the bank of the Nile and drew out a little profit. <laughs> and finally, who was the shortest man in the Bible? Nehi Maya. Well, that's my lame attempt to introduce you to the book of Nehemiah this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. And we're going to learn about three pursuits that we should have to be the kind of person God uses. As you're turning to the book of Nehemiah, as way of some background, we know that Nehemiah is best known for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And he did it in an amazing 52 days. And, of course, that's why out in the foyer we have our project Nehemiah, Nehemiah putting the bricks in the wall, because he built the walls. But the book of Nehemiah is so much more than just about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. In the last couple of years, I've had the privilege and opportunity to sit under some different professors. One of them was Dr. Johnson, Pastor Johnson of IBC, in our own evening Bible Institute class here, on the book of Nehemiah, where we went through. Some of you here was in that class. It was a wonderful series to go through. I also, up at Appalachian Bible College, in the master's class, had a class on the return and the exile. The exile and the return. Ezra and Nehemiah were the main books used for that. And then even this January, I was up at ABC for a biblical servant leadership class, 
And yes, Nehemiah was the main focus of the class. So I've developed quite a passion for the book and a love and appreciation for Nehemiah. His character, his ability to motivate people, his leadership, his prayer life, the type of man that he was. I think Nehemiah is one of the greatest Bible characters that we have, and we can learn a lot from Nehemiah. Well, Nehemiah was the leader of the what we call the third return of the exiles from Babylon. Just as a, as a way of a timeline, um, Israel, Judah, Ju- Jerusalem, was captured uh, by Babylon in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar came in. And when he captured it, he tore down the walls and he tore down the temple and he took the people out to exile. Well, about 50 years later, Cyrus, king of Persia, Medo-Persia, came in and he captured Babylon. And he had a completely different way of handling those that he captured and conquered. He made a decree and allowed the Israelites to go back to their homeland, rebuild the city, and rebuild the temple. And that was in 536. And that was the first return led by Zerubbabel. And they got the temple mount done, but then it kind of stalled out for a little bit. And a couple of prophets, minor prophets, came in. Zechariah and, of course, one of my favorite Italian prophets, Malachi, or Malachi. Um, Malachi, and they motivated the people, and they finished rebuilding the temple. And they finished rebuilding the temple in 516. That's about the first six chapters of Ezra. And then, as, as a timeline goes, there's a break. And in that break, we have the story of Esther. And you remember Esther, the Jewish girl living in Persia, and through a series of events and through a contest, uh, she became the queen to Xerxes. So here we have the Jewish girl who rose and became the queen, and through her, God used her in a mighty way at that time to preserve the nation of Israel because they uncovered a plot to destroy and kill the Jews. And then when that was known to the king, the king took care of that and had compassion For the Jews. And then it was his son, Artaxerxes, who then allowed Ezra for the second return in 458 to come back. And whereas Rubbabel was primarily about building the temple, Ezra was primarily about building the people. And Ezra came back and he was motivating the people. And then here we have Nehemiah about 14 years later. And Nehemiah, of course, is primarily about building the walls. Now, Nehemiah's circumstances um, were certainly no mistake. God had placed him where he was at that time to be used greatly by him. But it's important to understand the situation. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And this is the king of Persia. And at the time, Persia is the world power, the most greatest nation on the earth. And as cupbearer, he's responsible to protect the king from assassination, primarily from poisoning. So he would have to taste all the king's uh, drinks before he would let the king have them to make sure they weren't poisoned, of course, risking his life. Well, as cupbearer, they are very trusted persons in the kingdom and by the king. And because they're in such contact with the king, they also many times are very become confidants of the king and have influence with the king. And he had a very important position with the king. So that's, an, that's a good to know. So let's start with Nehemiah. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the words of Nehemiah, son of, son of Hakali, In the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant 
that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you, day and night, for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sin we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Well, I see in the first chapter of Nehemiah three pursuits that I should have that we should have in our life to be the kind of person that God uses. The first pursuit is the pursuit of a proper perspective. Nehemiah was devoted to God. Again, Nehemiah was concerned about what concerned God. And God had placed them there at that time. You know, God has placed you where you are at this time as well. He has placed you in the family that you have. He has placed you in the community that you live. He's placed you in the job that you have. And He's placed you in the church that you're at. You're not here by mistake. God has a plan and a purpose for you. We need to make sure that we're fulfilling God's purpose and plans for our lives. Well, Nehemiah was concerned about God's people. And Nehemiah was concerned about the world's view of God. He asked some questions. He asked about Jerusalem. That's the first thing that we see. He asked about God's chosen city. What was going on there? This wasn't just any city. This was a city where the temple of God was. And he wanted to make sure that things were right there. The temple where God dwelt. But he also asked questions according to Scripture. In verse 2, you see that he talks about the Jewish remnant. About the Jewish remnant that survived the exile. The remnant is a very important aspect for the Israelites. And we should understand a little bit about that. God had promised through Abraham that they would possess the land. And when, through the Mosaic Covenant, when they would disobey and he would scatter them, no matter how many Jews there were, whether there were thousands, hundreds of thousands, or millions, there would always be a remnant, a handful, that would be faithful to him. And through this remnant, God will work to fulfill his Abrahamic covenant and provide the land. 
And Nehemiah understood God's provision and the remnant. And he wanted this group that had gone back there because the first return had built the temple. And then Ezra, he knew Ezra went back and he was rebuilding the people. Could this be the remnant that God's going to restore the land and restore everything to? And he was really praying for that end. And actually, if you if we want to look, or I'll just read it to you, Isaiah 10, verse 20 to 22 says, In that day, the remnant of Israel... The survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer rely on him who struck them down, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. Though your people, O Israel, be like sands of the sea, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed, overwhelming and righteous. He knew that the people were there and he was praying and hoping that this was going to be what God was going to use to secure and rebuild that city. And he also knew that the temple was rebuilt, and for that to be secure, there had to be a wall, because it wouldn't take anything for the enemy to come in and destroy the temple again. So understanding that, he thought the wall should be going up. So he wanted to see about the great work that was being done. We're going to pause a second and talk about us again. Um, Again, you are where you are because God has placed you there. But the question is, are you concerned about the things that God is concerned with? Are you concerned with God's people? Are you concerned with the world's view of God? We need to look around. We need to get beyond ourselves and ask some questions about God's work. We need to ask some questions about God's work here at Fellowship. There's a lot of great ministries going on here at Fellowship. And there's a lot of ministries that need more people to plug in. And God could put it on your heart as a way of ministering here. One of the things I know is our junior church is understaffed. And we could use more workers to help and staff that back up to open it up to older grades. That's a wonderful ministry. Our Olympians this Friday night with the the events and all that they do. But they could use more help in the Olympian program in dealing with these children and being able to split the program down. There's lots of needs. And then we had Jim Zabalski up here talking about the soup kitchen and some needs that they have. You know, we need people to help and engage in ministry. But we don't want just people. We want people with a passion and a heart that want to be used by God and has a desire to serve in this area. And God will put it on your heart and we'll wait for God's right people to be supplied. But I think some of them might be sitting right here. There's other ministries going on here too. Uh, We have the SOS tables. Uh, Drew Goldbranson has started a group of men and they meet in different table groups throughout uh, Jefferson and Berkeley County on a weekly basis, a little Bible study time, a challenge, get to know each other. And then they do service projects. They've been helping the Martinsburg Rescue Mission. And just yesterday, uh, they lined up some of the widows of our church and took their cars and changed the oil and, and got them ready for the spring. There's all kind of ministries going on. And maybe there's a ministry that God's put on your heart that we're not even doing. Be willing to step out and be used by God. God wants to use people. You need to be willing and be ready to be the person that God can use. But that does mean that we need to have a proper perspective. It needs to be all about God, all about Him, and not about us. I hope you get that. I hope that you're devoted to God the way that it takes. When Nehemiah heard the news, he got it. He knew that a city without walls was defenseless. And it was actually an embarrassment. In Proverbs 25, 28, it says, Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks 
self-control. And we know what a man looks like who lacks self-control. He's usually an embarrassment. That's what the walls being down meant to the Israelites. It was an embarrassment to the city. Not just for security, but it was a disgrace. But it was even more than just the walls being torn down for Nehemiah. He understood that the people were there and they're allowing this to continue. This rubble that they're walking through every day existed. Some of them just walked through it. Others really didn't know what to do about it. But they allowed the rubble to exist and wasn't taken, they weren't taking any steps to fix it. Well, I think um, sometimes that's us. We allow rubble in our lives and we don't do anything to fix it. Matter of fact, we become a little complacent and sometimes it doesn't even bother us anymore that the rubble's there. Are you willing to let God do some rebuilding in your life? If you are, it means that you've got to be willing to have a concern about it and listen to the facts, even if you don't like it. But we all need to examine those areas of our life. Well, Nehemiah knew the Word of God. He knew that in Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesied about Babylon and that Babylon was coming and they're going to destroy the city. But he also knew that Jeremiah prophesied in chapter 25, verse 11, that this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. He knew that that was prophesied that it was going to last for 70 years. Well, Nebuchadnezzar did come in and destroyed the city in 536. And then 70 years later, under the second return, is when the temple was finished, just as God had said many years before. Nehemiah also knew the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah 44, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. And will accomplish all that I please. He will say to, of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundation be laid. Cyrus was named by name, first name, in Isaiah. But it's important to understand this was written 150 years before it happened. Naming him by name, before he was even born. We serve a big God. We serve a God that's in control. We need to have the proper perspective of who God is. Nehemiah knew these passages and knew what God had already done and what already had been fulfilled. So then why was he upset about the walls being torn down? Well, the walls have been torn down for almost 150 years. Why are you surprised that the walls are torn down? It's because he knew that Ezra's return not only was about rebuilding the people, but they started to rebuild the walls. But unfortunately, through political pressures and other problems, and even by force, they were stopped from rebuilding the walls. Well, Nehemiah hadn't learned this until now. He was hopeful that he was going to get a good report and that these walls were back up. But the report he got was the bad news, that the walls were broken down and the gates were burned. And that's why he was so distraught, because his hopes weren't being fulfilled. You know, many times we get bad news and it's not the news that we were expecting to get and our hopes get torn down. Nehemiah is a great example of 
how do you handle that? What do you do when that bad news comes? You need to turn it to God. Well, that's exactly what we see in Nehemiah. He developed a concern for what concerns God. And he questioned and listened with understanding. But then in verse 4 of Nehemiah, it says, I sat down. When I heard these things, I sat down. He didn't continue on with his normal routine. He didn't continue on just, oh, well, that's what's happening right now. He stopped what he was doing and he sat down and he just took a moment to think. We get so busy that I don't think we stop and think about the things of God and how things are affecting what God's Word says and what ought to be. He sat down. And then it says, he wept. For some days, I mourned. He was moved by what he heard. It was personal. He had passion about what he heard because he knew how God would be concerned about it, that it was God's city and what was happening to God's people, and it moved his heart. You know, God wants our hearts. He wants all of us, not part of us. Sometimes we kind of click things off and get in the, in the routine of things. And we may be concerned about things, but we don't really bear our hearts. God wants all of us. Matter of fact, I think Nehemiah even knew what Hosea said in chapter 7, verse 14, when God says, They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. God wants us to cry out to Him with our hearts. And that brings us to the second pursuit. The first pursuit is having a proper perspective of God. The second pursuit is the pursuit of prayer. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Nehemiah was devoted to God, and Nehemiah was dependent upon God. He was dependent upon Him in prayer. Prayer is an actual theme of the entire book of Nehemiah. It actually opens in the first chapter here with a prayer in Susa, the capital of Babylon or of Persia. And then in the very last chapter, in the la very last verse of the book, it's a prayer to God from the city of Jerusalem. And all throughout is riddled with prayer. See, Nehemiah knew that success was dependent upon God. And that meant it needed to be started with prayer and bathed in prayer throughout. Well, in the first chapter here, in the prayer that we have recorded, I see four parts of the process of the prayer. And I think these parts are true for us today as they were for Nehemiah at the time. First, of course, we need to stop and consider who you're praying to. We need to remember that. I think many times we just rip off the prayers and we don't think about God. We make all these requests, but who are we making these requests to? And that's the first part is Nehemiah in verse 5 shows conviction. A conviction about who God is. In verse 5 it says, Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of love with those who love Him and obey His commands. O Lord. He calls Him Master. Lord, I am your servant. You are the Master. He keeps a right perspective of who God is. And then he says... God of heaven. Not of this earth. He's way bigger than this earth. This is God of heaven who made the heavens. We've been watching a video series in our, the adult Sunday school class 
on, with Lou Giglio, and he goes into great detail about how big the universe is, how big God is that made that, because he's bigger than all that. We need to have that right perspective. He goes into how there's stars out there that make the sun, our star, look like a speck when it's compared to it. And then you take the sun and you take the earth, and our earth is like a speck next to it. And somewhere on that speck is us. God is a big God. And we need to have the right perspective of who He is. And then it says, great and awesome. There isn't anyone greater. There isn't anyone more awesome. God is big. And the bigger we see God, the smaller our problems become. We need to keep our focus in the right place. And then the last thing he says there is, who keeps his covenant of love. God is faithful. Nehemiah knew God would be faithful to his word. He keeps his covenant. Of course, Nehemiah is referring to the Abrahamic covenant and the land and giving the land back to, uh, to the nation of Israel. Well, we don't live under the Abrahamic covenant today, but we do live under the new covenant. God has given us a new covenant, which came with Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ came to the earth... He came with a purpose to die on the cross. And as my friend Andy Maples likes to say, when he was standing before the rollers that had the power to free him, most of the time, he didn't say a word. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who came to earth. This is Jesus who, when he was in the boat, and the waves were hitting, and the wind was blowing, said, Peace. Be still. In the wind, in the waves, they listen to him. This is Jesus who told the lame, Rise up, take your mat and walk. And they rose up. They took their mat and they walked. This is Jesus who said to the Roman centurion that your daughter will be healed because he had great faith and he didn't even have to go there. And his daughter was healed. The same centurions, the same people who in the very soon near future, we're going to whip and beat him. But he had passion on them. Compassion on them. And this is the same Jesus who stood outside of the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come out. And he came alive. And he walked out of the tomb. The power of his words. But he was quiet. But his words are even more powerful than that because in the beginning was the word. And he spoke everything that we know into existence. This earth, he said, let there be light, and there was light. The heavens, everything, was by his word. We serve an awesome God. And we need to have that perspective when we go to prayer. And then it becomes so much more real when you realize how big God is and what he did to sacrifice all of that and become a man and to die on a cross. That should drive you to want to serve him in itself. How much little it is that we give back from the greatness that he had done for us. We serve a big God. I pray that uh, you know him personally. So the first part was conviction and the prayer. Knowing the greatness of God and how great God is. The second part of his prayer is confession. It clears the path to God. It's an important step, but I think we often skip it. Sure, we might be moved by something that's happening, we might even realize that 
we shouldn't be doing something that we do. Sometimes we tend to justify it or try to glance over it. We may even want it to change, but we just don't take it to God. We don't confess. We need to confess our sins. I love how Nehemiah does it here. He just is honest. You know, he, he just puts it right out. He didn't make excuses for Israel. He didn't make excuses for himself. In verse 6 and 7, it says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins, we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. He owns it. We need to own it as well. Confession is what needs to happen. The third uh, part that I see in the process of prayer was his confidence. And I love this term because he goes from confession, which is great for us to see and, and model, but he doesn't dwell and stay there. He doesn't beat himself up. Oh, how horrible I am. I can't do anything right. I'm worthless. I'm useless. You might as well just take my life, Lord, because I'm, I'm just not worth anything. He turns it and understands. He confesses his sin. God is faithful, and he knows his word is real, and he's going to forgive him and the people. And then he turns to claim God's word. He turns in confidence to claim God's promises that are there. You know, uh, verse 8 through 10 says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, seeing, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the furthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. He wasn't praying to remind God of something God had promised. He didn't, try, he didn't need to inform God, Hey, don't forget, you promised this. This was him claiming what God has promised. They were already scattered. They had already disobeyed and were scattered. But he saw the remnant and he saw the work being done. And he wanted to say, Your word says, If we come back to you, you are going to gather the people. Lord, may this be that time. Gather. The people. You know, there's a lot of promises that God makes in the Bible that are applicable to us. I hope you believe in God's Word as strongly as Nehemiah believed in God's Word. But in order to believe it, you've got to know it. You've got to get into the Word. You've got to read it. And the more you read it, the more you understand, the more you'll be able to claim, the more you're able to pray with that confidence for what God's promises are. There's, a, there's an interesting passage in John, John chapter 15, verse 7. It says, If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given. Well, at first glance, this kind of seems like I can ask for whatever I want, and God's going to give it to me, as long as I'm a Christian. But that's not what it says. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you. Well, that means you've got to be in His Word, and His Word will conform your thinking. The Word will conform what your desires and interests are to line you up with the will that God has for your life. And then you're going to be praying according to His Word and His promises, and you can count on those. You can claim those. And you can 
God loves to hear us pray Scripture back to Him. But you've got to know the Word. And you've got to believe the Word. And then you can claim the Word. Well, the fourth step, or fourth part of the process that I see here, is commitment. Nehemiah knew God didn't need to have his help, but he was ready to get involved. In verse 11, it says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servant who delights in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. He prayed for God's blessing on his efforts. He prayed for God to help him in what he saw the next step would be. And he was showing God that he was available for God to use. He was willing to get involved. You know, the truth is, most of us don't need to learn how to pray. We need to practice what we know. And that's a conviction for myself as well as us that our prayer life should be foremost. And Nehemiah is a great example of that. There's a quote from Martin Luther who said, Pray as if everything depends on God, then work as if everything depends on you. Well, the first, uh, the first pursuit we had was the pursuit of a proper perspective. The second pursuit was the pr- pursuit of prayer. And the third pursuit we should have is the pursuit of preparedness. Nehemiah was devoted to God, Nehemiah was dependent upon God, and Nehemiah desired to serve God. He was prepared to act, but he waited for the Lord. It's an interesting story to read. If you read the very next verse, the first verse of the second chapter, you'll find out that even though he prayed for God to help him this day, it was four months before he got to act. Four months before he got his petition made known before the king. But during that time, he continued to pray. He fasted. He took his concerns to God. And God laid upon his heart the next steps and what he should do. And he started to prepare a plan. And he was ready to act when God was ready to lead. Sometimes we get ready to act and we just go. We need to stop. And we need to pray. We've got to keep God first in any of our actions to make sure that He's the one leading the way and that we're not getting in the way. But He waited on God, but it took four months. But He was prepared. So my encouragement to you today is to keep praying. Have a proper perspective of who God is. Understand His greatness and His awesomeness. Learn more and more about that. And then continue your prayers. When you don't think that your prayers are being answered and that you don't think that God hears you, make sure you're in His Word and that your mind is where it needs to be and God does hear your prayers. Have conviction about how great He is. That will lead you to confess our inadequacies. But then claim His forgiveness claim His promises, stand on His Word, make His Word the guiding factor in everything that you do, and be committed to get involved. There's a lot of areas that you can get involved in, and I want to challenge you today to pray for God to show you how He wants to use you. Whether that's here in our church, in our ministries, or in your neighborhood, or in your work environment, God wants to use you if you're willing to be 
used. Pursue God. Pursue prayer. And be ready to act. These are the things we need to put in place in our lives for God to use us to the fullest. Now, some of you are involved very heavily in ministry here. And for that, I want to encourage you today and challenge you to pray for your ministries. Don't forget, they need our prayers. You know, God has blessed us here at Fellowship greatly in the last few years. We have grown tremendously. We have ministries going in many directions. We've been blessed financially. Satan doesn't like that. We need to bathe this ministry in prayer. We need God to be directing us, and we want God to show us the steps He wants us to use with what He's given us. And He wants to use you in His ministry, in His gospel. So my challenge to you is pray to God and be prepared to act so that God can use you in the way that He wants to use you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the book of Nehemiah, the words that were recorded there to teach us and to grow us. Father, we know that we should pray more. We just don't do it. Father, help us to be dedicated to be devoted the way that we should be, to understand your greatness and desire to have that relationship with you because you desire it with us. Father, help us to bear our burdens, our hearts, our passions to you for you to direct them. Show us where it is that you would have us be involved and be used in a great way for you. May we all be the vessels that you can use. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.